You're listening to Hey guys, welcome back to First of All, a real unfiltered conversation on career, family, relationships, and culture, and sex ed. Hi, my name is Minji Chang. I'm an actor and filmmaker here to share inspiring stories and just get through this crazy, insane, ridiculous, beautiful, just wonderful life. I went almost to say ridiculous. You heard that, right? I almost said ridiculous. Anyway, it is a wonderful life, but oh my God, what a time to be alive. As I've been saying for the past several years, I hope you are doing fabulously. I hope you are hydrated. I hope you are wearing sunscreen. Shout out to Hugh Jackman, sending love to him as he's getting tested for skin cancer again and reminding us all the importance, how cool it is to wear sunscreen. And shout out to my boo, Kevin Fong, because he is the biggest ambassador of sunscreen that I know. Um, Good reminders, right? In this episode, I'm ready to just jump right in because it is a topic that I get really, really excited to talk about. Sex ed. And this is where so many facets of me as a person, this is like the bio geek Minji, public health major Minji, the recovering Baptist Christian, you know, former religious Minji, and the nosy romance, you know, obsessed What's your favorite color? What do you smell like? What do you like? Who's your favorite celebrity crush? All that stuff, Minji. All that kind of coming together into asking all these questions and being able to have these conversations with somebody who is far smarter than I am in a lot of aspects about this topic. It is the greatest. I am so curious about what makes people tick, what makes them happy, what breaks their heart, what gives them hope and inspiration. And I think it's safe to say that our sexuality is hugely, like fundamentally, essentially influential in how we operate as people. And it's further mind-boggling that we all get educated about it in different ways. Educated on like the biology of it, which is the mechanics of how the body works, how sex works, what are the risks. What are the consequences of certain choices? And then it goes into like the spiritual world and the the psychological world and how we relate to ourselves when it comes to just us as a bunch of cells and then also us as like sexual beings and our desires and our preferences and our safety and our boundaries within ourselves and then with other people, right? It's just, I could talk about this for days and days and days. But today we have a conversation with Anne Hoddership and Anne is she's just phenomenal and is an award-winning certified sex and relationship educator who is dedicated to providing accurate, expansive, and compassionate care. Love it. I love all that. That's the greatest intentions I've ever heard. Um, They are the founder and lead educator at Everyone Deserves Sex Ed, which is a sex ed and professional development organization. And they work with people and couples of almost any age to help build skills and knowledge and confidence around identity, pleasure, relationships, and communication. I love, I love, love, love it. Um, and Anne, I found on TikTok, I discovered her content and I was truly blown away by how no nonsense and how direct and educational she was. Like you could just tell what her intention was in, ter- in terms of sharing information that frankly, a lot of people are deprived of 
in a lot of ways or misinformed or underinformed or just like have a lot of kind of internalized issues within themselves to even receive because there's so much guilt and shame and propriety and like all these rules that have been kind of programmed into us to have a really interesting and, you know, all of our own unique ways of like hearing this information and understanding it and applying it to our lives. So found her on TikTok because, of course, and fell in love with the content um, and reached out to her and she was wonderful and said yes. And it was so exciting to sit down and talk about this. And I want to give everyone a heads up because obviously we're talking about sex ed, but there is, you know, a breakdown in the conversation of not just talking about things from a very, uh, what's the right word? from like an academic standpoint and like the facts, but it's a lot about our journeys as two individuals with very different upbringings, with two very different experiences and introductions and relationships to sex ed and how that's shaped us as people. And hopefully in that, you know, my goal with this space, with this podcast, with these conversations, with my life, my work, I want to help heal, open up doors, break down boundaries, and just have more nurturing, like compassionate love for self to not be literally just drowning in shame and guilt about having desires, having questions, feeling stupid about that sometimes. I definitely feel stupid so much of the time that it's hindered me from being curious and being a person who just doesn't know certain information. Let's normalize this stuff because I know as much as we've progressed, and I'm so happy about all the progress we have made, there's still a lot of work to do. And Again, the stories that I hear from different friends from different parts of the world and certainly from this insane country of the United States of America, you know, the reigning dumpster fire of the world currently, um, you know, there's a variety of ways that we have learned or not learned about a lot of, in my mind, very basic fundamental things. And I worked in the health office, so I got to file medical records. So I learned for myself from like really smart, quote unquote, college students, how undereducated <laughs> many were. Um, I don't think I broke any HIPAA laws. There. Just like it just suffice it to say, like I learned a lot. And I myself have been very, <laughs> very traumatized in certain ways and very like, again, it's the mix of like what you know in your brain and then what you do as a person. Those are those can be very different things. You know what I mean? So all to say, really excited to share this episode with you. It is per usual, tip of the iceberg. We cannot get into everything especially on a topic as big and and nuanced and rich as this topic is. But I hope that it's a good intro to some and a good just, you know, good reminder for those that we have all of these resources available to us and that it's good for us to be able to have a safe space to learn and hopefully with people that we trust and feel safe with can share that. So Hope you guys feel liberated, empowered, entertained, all of the above um, on this really great conversation that I had with Anne Hottership on Sex Ed. Enjoy. Yeah. Came in 88 with a dream of so bright eyed. They knew right away, sick of swim, there's no lifelines. Cutting the teeth on the move. Nobody's feeling me. Welcome to First of All, Anne. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. I actually didn't know where you're calling in from. Like, where where do you, where are you? If you yeah, want to share that information. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty, um, it's, apparently people on the internet officially know this. Um, okay. But yeah, I'm in Portland, Oregon after about 15 years in Los Angeles. Oh, amazing. How recently in Portland? A year and a half. Oh, wow. Yeah. One of my best friends moved up there. 
during nice. the pandemic, the panorama. Yeah. There were a lot of us doing that. <laughs> so I hear, I was here like, oh my God, everyone's moving up here. How are yeah, you liking yeah. it? It's, I mean, it's great. It's, it's a big uh, changer. I mean, my, my sister is here with her kids and my best friend from childhood lives here and it's nice. just um, a quality of life improvement that was long overdue. Amazing. I'm so, I honestly really love that. For you. And maybe this whole shenanigans that we've been through, I really started reevaluating as many people did, like, what makes me happy? Where do I belong? Is it in LA where it's really expensive and there's lots of you know, stressors that not everybody else in this country has to deal with, but you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad to have you on the show. Um, I discovered you as many people have on the internet on TikTok, mm -hmm. And I was just like, I want to get to know, Anne. she seems so smart and amazing. And she speaks <laughs> about so many things that are dear to my little public health heart. Um, and yeah, I'm just so excited to, to hear about like your journey, your work and, and share with the, the, more people, hopefully we're reaching new, new audiences about all the amazing stuff that you're doing. So I did a little intro for you, uh, in the intro, uh, before we jumped into the conversation, but can you like introduce your, how, how do you, how do you explain you, your work and all that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I am a, by trade, I mean, I'm, tr oh, geez, how do I even say I'm a sex educator. I teach sex and relationships education to, um, I mean, everyone from like age, probably 12 to, I don't know, 75 is probably the oldest I've worked with. And I also train people to teach sex ed wow. in way in different ways. So it's sort of like this idea of um, on what's in my control, what's not. I can work with as many people as I can. I can put out resources. I can, you know, engage with people on social media. But what can really potentially uh, make the incremental change that is seems more feasible is to sort of infiltrate all of the corners of society mm -hmm. because anybody who really talks to anybody else in some informative way is an educator. Yeah. Whether they would use that language or not, like totally up to them, but it's a form of education. So why not equip anyone and everybody who wants it with the language, the information, at least yeah. the, the skills and tools to look stuff up and to support people mm -hmm. and help them just better serve their community as well and give themselves the confidence and the grounding in their own knowledge and understanding of things that are relatively complex and are very intentionally left out of most accessible and affordable education spaces. And sometimes the, the very unaffordable education spaces, it's also missing. I would say maybe more often than not depressingly. So mm -hmm. that's what I spend most of my time doing. Uh, I also, um, my first business was a PR and marketing firm that worked with sexuality businesses. So I still do that. It's just not necessarily something that I am building as much as the sex ed side of things, wow. but it's all under the sexuality umbrella. That I am so impressed. Honestly, I, so fun fact, as we're getting to know each other on this, on this call, um, I actually had once upon a time dreamed of being a health teacher. So I had been on this path starting in high school to pursue a career in medicine. It was something that I was really passionate about and started that actually in ninth grade um, because middle school health, like obviously had an impact on me. And I was like, okay, this is amazing. I want to go into this universe. And I thought, okay, if the doctor thing doesn't work out, I want to be a high school health teacher. And 
somehow see this is like I was like everybody pursue their dreams yes I'm doing the whole like Hollywood entertainment thing but like I'm still here on this podcast getting to talk to you about Mm -hmm. sex education and I am like beside myself with happiness right now because (laughs) it's still you can find many many paths to the same destination is what I'm saying um so I think it's just really really cool that how did you I, just to rewind, I really want to get into the, like the work, but like how, what, what brought you to wanting to do this kind of work? Like, what was, did you have a specific milestone watershed moment that was like, okay, this is how I want to contribute to society, to humanity, um, or was it kind of like a gradual thing? I'm just so curious. I mean, it's, it's kind of a combination of both. I've always, <clears throat> since childhood was very interested in things like sex and sexuality and was very much on my own, just kind of figuring out what that even is. Mm-hmm. And this was pre-internet. So I would spend a lot of time in the local small town library um, using the card catalog. So I know the Dewey Decimal System. Yes. So um, and then once they upgraded to these old computer, but again, still pre-internet, but like computer card catalog, whatever's, I would pseudo discreetly look up the sex section of books, which was just like this very small section that was very visible to all the adults and Mm. just spend a lot of time reading. Because for me, having access to information or being able to answer or have answers to questions gave me a sense of control and agency and safety. Yeah. And um so it was just like very much just a self-centered type of experience of just like, oh, this, this is interesting. That's interesting. And I didn't really have any reason to think that that was unusual or Mm -hmm. something to be embarrassed or ashamed of. A lot of the adults, if any adults in my life knew about anything really going on with me, they pretended that they didn't. So um, it was really just sort of on my own. And then into college, um, I was a journalist by trade, by training. And so I was going into print journalism and also took any sociology and sexuality course that they offered. And this was sort of pre- the time where pre now where there's all kinds of coursework around gender studies. This was in a very liberal school. They had um, women's studies, men's studies, and then sociology of gender. And like, that was kind of it. And so I sort of made a sociology minor um, accidentally and like just pieced it all together without necessarily a goal. Mm. And when I then graduated, my assumption was I was going to do like fashion journalism. Um, I was always like publicly very interested in like fashion and stuff. And there's a whole long story about that with my childhood and like why that mattered at the time. But then going into the journalism side and what fashion journalism really was about, it was very much, um, you know, trying to recreate outfits that like Lindsay Lohan was wearing. This is 2007, Mm -hmm. right? So, uh, and then like put together the look and this was like Lucky Magazine still existed. I'm definitely aging myself, but- uh, (laughs) I read it too. (laughs) And I was like, this kind of sucks, um, but whatever. And I was looking for another job after my first short stint uh, at uh, digital journalism, fashion journalism. And there was an online public, or there was an adult publication that covered the business of porn. And I was like, oh, I didn't actually think that there could be a way to kind of connect like sex and then journalism. Yeah, I'll apply. And I got the job and I wasn't very good at the first initial job. I was supposed to look, I was the copy editor. So I was supposed to look look at for errors and stuff. And I was good, but not good enough in their eyes, whatever. And, uh, but they, I, they kept me on as a reporter and that's where I really built my knowledge and understanding of the adult industry as a whole, but especially the sex toy side of things. 
they didn't have a sex toy section in the magazine, which mm-hmm. to me is like having a, a, a department store with no shoe section. Like it made no sense. Yeah, and I had been using sex toys since before I even knew that they were sex toys. Um, we call them pervertibles now where like, if I was masturbating as a kid, like I would just like, if, if something had an interesting texture, I'd rub it against things that felt nice. And that again, no reason to think that that was unusual. And so the idea that not only would there be no section for sex toys, but that people would even think that they weren't worth covering. So it was a huge industry mm-hmm. pre this magazine. I had found um, the store is now called Babeland, but it was babes in Toyland. At the time I had walked into that store just on a whim in New York city in 2004 or something and bought my first actual sex toy and was just like, it again, just, it was so normal. Like, why wouldn't anybody want this? I got, I would buy my friends things, um, as gifts. And mm-hmm. so I was at that magazine for about three years until I realized there was no where to really grow there. Okay. And so I sort of accidentally then started what is now the PR and marketing side of the business. Cause when I left the magazine, a lot of the sex toy companies were like, Oh, you're a free agent. Can you help us with copywriting and developing this idea and this campaign? And I was like, I guess so. Sure. Well, I was like waiting to see where else else I could get hired. And that was at the end of 2009. Wow. And throughout that time, um, I was still doing some sex journalism with a pseudonym, Barbie Davenport. And uh, during that time, people started calling me a sex educator. I was on a lot of podcasts and um, quoted in some articles. And though I knew a lot of information and I felt a lot of passion and power and ser- like servitude, but like service, um, being of service, providing information to people that they didn't have access to otherwise, mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily have like an education or educator background with facilitation skills and things like that. Mm. So around 2015 was when I started to also get trained on the education side of things. And so there's always been a bit of a Venn diagram of PR and marketing and messaging for sexuality stuff. And then like the actual education side, there's Mm. always overlap. I would, Mm -hmm. a lot of the times um, sex ed would kind of, I would help like sneak it into some of the copy and some of the marketing stuff because it it helps sell stuff. And now sexual wellness and sexual health is a huge billion, billion dollar business. It's very, very much, it's abnormal to not incorporate some kind of sexual health information into a sex toy marketing campaign or description um, online when you're shopping. So you paved the way. (laughs) In some ways, I mean, I was one of many, I think the sex toy company, the sex toy industry at the time was very different from how it is now. It was, um, the analogy I use is like a, a shopping mall, which I know are slowly dying. But when you go to the mall, there would be like the big anchor stores, like the mall near me. Uh, There's a Sears, a JCPenney. Mm-hmm. I don't even know those types of stores. And then you'd have the little stores, the little boutiques in between. Right, right, right. So the sex toy industry was very much like these big anchor companies, most of which still exist today. And then smaller boutique brands, family owned, smaller, doing really interesting stuff. And so those smaller brands and I, we were all just kind of like this family. And when there were conferences and conventions, you know, we would all be meeting up together. And it was a really interesting time to be at the one of many at the forefront of what is now um, a just a completely transformed industry, not necessarily for the better, but to kind mm-hmm. of see how that initial those initial ideas and the designs and the the things that these small businesses were putting together sometimes with me helping them has 
helped create this space now for like one of Paltrow to make overpriced vibrators to sell publicly <laughs> and, you know, talk about vaginas on Netflix. And um, so, so yeah, th- then that's basically from like 2007 until now, that's been, that whole evolution has sort of been slowly happening. What a, what a whirlwind. Like, I mean, it's over an extended amount of time, but I feel like in the grand scheme of things, I always kind of like zoom out on stuff, like in the grand scheme of things and all of humanity and the fact that how much change is happening in such a short period of time is, it is a lot. And I've, what I've been learning throughout, you know, my little blip here on earth is just how much it does take so much time for things to actually change. And especially when it comes to stuff like culture and the attitudes and the beliefs, like the programming and, or just like our own personalities and how that jives with what's out in like the mainstream versus what's taboo. And, you know, all of that, it's like, it's such a, it's just always evolving and it takes time for things to like be planted to like germ, you know, and then grow and then be hard. Like, it just takes so much time. And that's, I'm fascinated by humanity in general. I think that's my overarching thing, which is why I think ultimately I, I land in the artist bucket to like, I want to write and direct and be a person so that I can kind of show the different colors and different sides to what it means to be a woman and um, female identifying, you know, cis, hetero, female, like what, what all these things that are new language but have such specificity now available mm-hmm. to us that it's like, it gives so much more nuance. And I think that's, if we are nothing else, we're just a bunch of specifics and nuance. Like mm-hmm. we try to bucket everything into different categories and then, you know, and it's, we're a contradiction because we're not where you can categorize us all you want, but it comes down to the details, devil's in the details. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's so, I think if you had told me when I was, say like 10, I went through puberty at like 10 years old, nine, 10 years old. So technically at that time in our generation was early bloomer, which now is not the case at all because girls are going through um, puberty so much earlier. Um, If you had told me at that time in my context of being Korean American, I was, uh, I grew up very, very Baptist Christian and things like that. If you had told me that eventually you and I would be having this conversation in a public forum, (laughs) like (laughs) to be shared with the entire universe, I would have had a meltdown and just been in complete shock and disbelief because I was full of this curiosity and full of this investigatory kind of personality. I was definitely a library goer. I was definitely a book reader. Um, And I had so many questions and so many exploratory like impulses, but like I just grew up in a place and a time and in a specific context where all of that was just siphoned off from me at every turn. And I spent a lot of my adult years trying to really understand that from a place of like just pure analytics, but also with compassion because I've had so much anger towards that too. Cause I've suffered damage in a lot of ways because of that. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge that because I think it's so cool that you and I at this point in time in this point in history can like have this conversation. Cause I just would not have believed it when I was younger. It was just too taboo. It was too out of my reckoning of like what reality could be to mm-hmm. talk about this stuff. Cause I wanted to, I like, I wanted to know things. I wanted to understand like, why does this happen? Or like, Oh, I had this experience. What do you feel about it? Mm-hmm. But in my bubble, it was just not allowed. And it was so like the number one word really was the shame. It's just yep. shame and it's um, improper. And it's honestly, I, I still think it's wrong to say it's like, it was considered like disgusting and gross and like mm-hmm. abhorrent to, to be like talking about things of that nature. So I mean, just from starters from my side of 
how that contrasts to your childhood. I'm so glad that you had the freedom to do that. And I do think there's a spectrum, right? Between you and me of like how, and way more intense than I did. Cause I still actually had access to cable. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I watched TV and movies and films, which were honestly a huge curiosity point for me when I watched, let's be it was funny. Cause we just had the Oscars, but like Top Gun, that the, the sexy, sexy scene that I, I still think is so like beautifully shot and all that with mm-hmm. um, Tom Cruise and Kelly McGillis. I watched that when I was like five, mm-hmm. something happened there. I'm just being real. I was like, Oh, cause I, I think my friends make fun of me that like I came out of the womb just like crushing on boys that I was just like, oh, my God, you're so cute. So first of all, knew at five years old that Tom Cruise is a hottie, but like also was really something was kind of this curiosity was peaked really early on. Um, yeah, it's just wild. And when you did you were you influenced by those things? Like, obviously, we had the library, the Dewey Decimal System and all of that. But do you think like TV, music, all that stuff was that? When and how did that kind of get into your psyche? Did that influence like your education? Because I do feel like it's like such an early educator. It is. I, you know, for me, I, I don't actually. When I think back on childhood and there's definitely a lot of foggy moments in my childhood, just to be honest, um, mm-hmm. there's just like with anything, like there's a positive and a, and a less positive about some of the more maybe like emotional neglect that was existing at the time. Mm-hmm. and. I noticed that if something wasn't overtly sexual, at least from what I can remember now, like I didn't necessarily feel very impacted by seeing sexy scenes in shows. I was most impacted by things that seemed to be like just overtly sexual. Mm. The closest thing would be uh, like HBO's, I think it was HBO, uh, Real Sex. That was for a lot of people of my generation, an introduction where it was on late at night, but it was still not like pornographic because it was on HBO at least. And at the time HBO was like the closest to pornographic of the expensive channels you could pay for. <laughs> so true. And I don't think we had it. I don't remember exactly where I would watch real sex, but like I would watch it with friends and I, and it was never a, a thing that like perked my interest. Like, Oh my God, that's sexy. There would be my main exposure like my experience of my own sexuality was interestingly very unscripted. Mm. I did not have a lot of social scripting around what sex was or that it was something to like. I don't even remember. I remember my first actual crush was on a random boy in third grade, I think, but I don't also, a lot of my, my first big celebrity crush was boy George, which honestly, you know, fast forward, it makes a lot of sense about who I am with my sexuality now. Mm -hmm. Um, I just never really had any messaging around like, Oh, that's a sex scene, you know, teehee, or that's a heartthrob, you know, like that person, The, the people I thought were attractive were sort of like all over the place. And it was rarely in a sexual way. Those mm-hmm. maybe an an air of sexual, like I, I think I would get, I don't know, like a a fluttery interest type of vibe. Yeah. So Boy George, Tom Petty for a little while, Alan Cumming, when I saw him on uh perform the um cabaret opening song on Rosie on the Rosie O'Donnell show millions of years ago. <laughs> those were Ewan McGregor for a little while and mm. A lot of just um, not saying that all of them are femme men, though, definitely, of course, you know, Boy George and Alan Cumming are make me laugh now that I like them so much. Um, it would just anyway, like I just don't I, I don't see how this is even possible unless there really is something about my potential 
gray sexual being on the asexual spectrum in some way because mm-hmm. my attraction never really seemed to be oh that person is hot I want to have sexy things with them it's like this person I am so drawn to them I want to be around them and they make me feel something well so it was just so just thinking back on it it's just kind of interesting I don't necessarily have like these really nice neat and tidy answers which yeah. I'm privileged to not feel thrown off by that I think neat and tidy it would be almost for me as a who I am, it would be weird if they were neat and tidy answers. Mm-hmm. The stuff that was more formative in terms of exposure to sexual things was an accidental exposure to phone sex at a young age. And so it's not unusual for people's first experiences with sex stuff to be something that wasn't exactly consensual, whether it was with, unfortunately, some kind of an essay experience, often mm-hmm. with a, a family member or someone who is known to them, like a neighbor or stumbling upon or being given some kind of porn or adult material by another adult. And I work with kids now and sometimes teenagers kind of make jokes. Actually, I don't think they mean it as jokes, to be honest, but I laugh at it. They kind of think that like before the internet, you were safe from being exposed to porn as a kid. And it's sort of like, oh, adorable, dearest. No, no. Uh, so, so for me, it was, yeah, accidentally like, calling a number that I thought was going to be like a crank call to a customer service number on the back of like a shampoo bottle. Um, and instead I must've missed dials and it was phone sex, but I was really, really, I was just so like, like frozen by it. Cause I was like, this is making me feel so many things. Mm-hmm. So anyway, like th- that was kind of the, the stuff that I I noticed like a sexual reaction to as a kid. And then everything that was sort of like basic and not porn related for whatever reason, didn't necessarily have that big, you know, formative scripting type of impact on me, which of course I'm thankful for because I didn't have a, a lot of the relationship scripting or the sexual scripting that a lot of my friends and colleagues and clients had Yeah, that then has to kind of get broken down. But at the same time, not having any script to go by, it can be very untethering. It can yeah. feel very isolating. And that on top of nobody being willing or permitting you to like get answers to questions or learn or be respected as a, a human being deserving of information, mm-hmm. it's, it can be extra just kind of like flailing around wondering like wh- which way is up a little yeah. bit. Yeah, that's. I mean, the fact that you're an educator just really shines and because like the language that you use to identify, I mean, I, I understand that you're not trying to put anything in a neat and tidy package, but I do think that the language that you use gives so much um, groundedness to like these very wayward feelings. Like there, there's so many, I, I love what you said about being untethered. It's just like, I did feel like I was just like, it feels like even though our reactions, our responses to different stimuli were different as growing up as kids, I think like it still does at the time when you're young and honestly, who knows into how far into adulthood based on what you're exposed to and what you're educated on. It feels like you're just like roaming around in the fog. You you're trying to find normal, especially when I was young, it was a lot about like reference points, right? Like, Mm -hmm. okay, so I think that this is attractive and it wasn't, I love that you pinpointed too. It didn't necessarily, things uh, I'm realizing now (laughs) as a fully grown woman, like those things didn't necessarily elicit a sexual reaction out of me, but it elicited a reaction out of me. I noticed I was like, oh, why am I so like, you know, suddenly interested in Top Gun? It was a movie about jets. Like I give a shit. Like it was my dad and my brothers are all about it, but I was like, oh, but he's nice to look at. Why is that? I didn't know that at five. Um, 
and it's, it's different than when I was five between and I had all these innocent crushes because they were not sexual. But I think even at church, I would have crushes on boys and they would have crushes on me back. Those were like shunned by the elders. And I'd be mm-hmm. so I'd be like aware of their response in my mind being this gross overreaction of like, why are they like barring me from being near mm-hmm. this boy? We're not we didn't do anything, but they're mm-hmm. acting like we just committed some egregious like thing. Yep. And this is when I was like 10 and all sorts of things in between about like, you know, even watching movies, like it was in my family, it's like cover your eyes. Right. Mm-hmm. I had to, I, I don't know about anybody else out there, but like I was in a family of cover your eyes. Don't look. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if a kiss, any physical contact came in, anything implying, like we're going to get into what we know as a grown up is something sexual, which I had no frame of reference on when I was a kid. All I knew was like, I'm supposed to cover my eyes. That's inappropriate. It's not for children's eyes, whatever, which only piqued my curiosity more. Of course. And so it's that, that general feeling of like, how do we figure out what any of this means and its significance? And you're also discovering what is a healthy and what that even means, right? A healthy or safe or, you know, it's a lot of experimenting. You're just going to like mm-hmm. think and feel and do things <clears throat> and like accidentally call a sex. I called a sex line on purpose. I don't think I'd ever tell anybody this in my whole life, but mm-hmm. I was curious and I was like, oh, these have like, I for, I think it was like some ad in a magazine, but it had like roses and like a, a shoe or it was something very like, you know, nowadays it'd be like very nostalgic, cheesy, but I was like, what is that about? So I called mm-hmm. it and of course it's a paid thing. So I didn't get very far, but like you hear that voice and it's ultra that I'm also a voice actor. So it's just very funny to me. now. And it's yeah. like ultra like, Hey, if you want to blah, blah, blah. I was like, what in the, so again, just data point after data was like, what's going on here? People pay for this. They're like, yep. you want to pay blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, so this is like a service. Um, stuff like that. I think is very, it's also, it's, it's untethered thing of discovery and going back to like what I felt like I felt very rebellious personally and I felt very curious but I also felt very shameful like it was already Mm -hmm. starting from such a young age that like I'm doing something that I'm not supposed to be doing I'm doing something that if somebody found out Mm -hmm. there would be hell to pay in some form you know yeah Um, well you were a good student I mean that's what the adults wanted you to believe and you were like no problem I will and that those are really great examples of how the power of adults and authority figures in our formative years, that's where we pick up the messaging and the scripting around all kinds of things and what's Mm -hmm. allowed and what's not, Mm -hmm. what are the rules about everything in addition to sex. And if sex is not talked about, that's also communicating something loud and clear, right? So it's, that's why all of us are going to have our own different weird sort of imprint journey because we, we might all have similar points that we can relate on, but we all are on our own individual paths and each interaction we had, especially with adults and authority figures in our lives, impacted us in all different kinds of ways. And a lot of the times it's not necessarily consciously, mm-hmm. but that's where we then learn what do we need to feel ashamed of yeah. while also curious at the same time, or what's permitted and what am I then later in life going to permit for myself or not permit becoming our own authority figure, our own sort of pseudo parent on the inside where like, I'm curious about this and I want this and I desire this so much and I can't fight it. So I do it. And now I'm going to treat myself as though I'm five and I'm getting punished by 
the, the priest or my dad or my stepmom or wh- whatever. Right. And that just becomes like this cycle and it's absolutely disruptable. Yeah. But you have to first sort of want to disrupt it and be willing to kind of pause for a minute and ask, you know, who's voice even is this? Whose rules are these? Whose beliefs are these? Where did they come from? Because they weren't pre-downloaded. So I obviously picked them up someplace. Mm-hmm. And are they actually mine? Mm-hmm. And if they are, if I b- believe they're actually mine, do they benefit me in any way, shape or form? Yeah. And sometimes the answer to that is yes, yes, and yes. And then you keep on going. Mm-hmm. And other times it's, I don't know. And now I feel like the rug's been pulled out from under me. And It's just, and then other times I would say maybe less commonly, but it's like, yeah, these don't serve me. Fuck this. I'm, you know, empowered and going most commonly it's that in between wobble of feeling like, yeah, I just, all of the rains and all of the things that kept me connected to the ground. Yeah. I have to let go of them in order to, like, I I almost don't have a choice now. I have to let go, but then what do I hold on to? You know, what's left and it can be very scary. Um, and that's, of course, where when a lot of the times people will come to people like me or my colleagues for mm-hmm. support to kind of learn, like, I use a, a garden analogy, you know, once once you have realized what are the weeds and what are the plants you want to keep, you have a whole lot of space and a lot of gaps in your garden. And it doesn't mean the garden's garbage and it doesn't mean it's a shitty garden. It's just like, now you get to take the time to choose what works better. And instead of sort of winging it, like most of us have had to do our entire lives mm-hmm. with trial and error, tons mm-hmm. of error, tons of trial, lots of error. You <laughs> go to somebody who knows about horticulture, horticulture, and you're like, all right, here's the size of the garden. Here's what I have to work with. Here's the other shit going on here. Yeah. What could go here? What could fit here? And last, you know, what would go here without necessarily sucking nutrients away from the plants who are already there? And then you get to put together the garden that actually it represents you, not your ancestors, not your formative authority figures, not the media, not the ads mm-hmm. that you've been you know, bludgeoned with since birth, basically, mm-hmm. and any of the gender norms that you've gotten since pre-birth. And then it's like, this is my fucking garden. And there's agency there. There's pride. There's empowerment. It ends yeah. up being a little bit more fun because you have guidance and you didn't have to figure it out on your own. And so you then get to be reminded that it's, you're not on your own with anything. There really is opportunity and option for help and support, even if it is as simple as logging on to a trusted person's social media account and getting whatever free content you're able to get. That totally counts. It honestly, thank you. Thank you for saying all that. And I co-sign everything because I would say, even as, you know, a, a grown woman who's gone through a lot of my process, a lot of the things that you were saying about tilling my own soil and going through a whole lifetime. I I personally, in my, what I've also shared in pieces over the course of this podcast have discovered about myself and shared openly in ways that I never really truly expected to. I thought I could just do it in a fictional format and, Mm -hmm. but I become really um, emboldened to be more honest hosting my own show and having awesome people create space for me to just be like, yeah, this is what I also went through. It's a constant regardening, if you will. Like I've through those experiences, through those conversations and through the therapy and through the self-isolation, not in terms like in a bad way, but just like pull away from the world and really think, 
what the hell is it that I actually believe? And what are the things like being really real with myself, not saying some prepackaged, you know, self-help version of what I'm supposed to say and think at this point as like a 30 something year old woman, you know, what do I actually really feel about that? What was it damaging? Was this actually empowering? Like talking about stuff like hookup culture and doing all these like sexually liberated things that I think in concept, I get the essence of it, but in practice can be really, really harmful and really, Mm -hmm. really damaging to ask the hard questions and answer those truthfully of like, is this something I want? Has it been helpful for me? Are there ways that I have done this that have been more negative than positive and be able to answer that? It's been Mm -hmm. like years of this. And so why I'm so glad that you're here is to like, really kind of pull all those things together of like pieces that I I think I've shared on this show. And then like, really, I, I just really encourage people to go to your TikTok because from just like, I, I scroll way too much, but I stayed a good while on your channel because of how simple, direct and to the point, how informative, how no bullshit, but still compassionate and still like empowering it was because that's what I think personally is a huge component of the healing that I think a lot of people are going through right now. Maybe mm-hmm. in like our, both our generations of like, just people trying to figure out how did it get here? Yeah. And like, how, how are we all here and how did they get here? And like truly answering that, those questions. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. the sex component is such a nuanced, complicated thing to talk about. Right. Like mm-hmm. there's so much of the biology and so much of the psychology and so much of the sociology. And to me, like the spirituality, all these like really, really deeply intense things all intersecting. Mm -hmm. In the form of our sexual desires, our sexual behaviors, and then what we feel about all of that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And not just anybody can kind of come right out the gate and like speak with authority on that, which is why I'm glad that like people that make it the center of being educated on it and continuously excavating that world can speak on it. That's why I was like, I need to talk to Anne. Well, (laughs) Anne talk to me because I would love to like share her work. Um, And I just think it's always a thank you because- those things, you know, a minute, one, your one minute TikTok can crystallize something that was just a bunch of like mm-hmm. random fairy dust thoughts or dust or whatever you want to call it. And it's now like, oh, that's what that was. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I'm not crazy. That makes sense to me. Um, And I'm, I mean, I'm just, I'm so glad. I think that, you know, when you mentioned um how sex and sexuality have all of these different components, like the spiritual, the social, the biological. One of the big parts of my job is helping people not just understand what is like potentially true for them, but also to be able to identify when things like sociology and spirituality have been forced into biology and um, like it's spirituality wearing biology clothing or sociology wearing biology clothing, which is what a lot of biological sex as well as gender is about. And of course, over the last several years, that's been more on the forefront of conversations Mm -hmm. um, where it's that the light is being shown on it a little bit more. I find that especially for people who are having a hard time wrapping their heads around things that feel very complicated or feel like, but this truth is so important to me and my whole sense of being that I can't let go of it. Mm -hmm. I like to, I've been doing this with abortion recently too, really drill down to, as you were saying earlier, like I like zooming out a lot. So it's sort of like, wait a minute, what the fuck? How did we get here? Zoom out. No, let's zoom out even more. Like what's, where's the starting point? And helping bring in a framework around 
okay, so here's the thing that's challenging. And here's what I'm telling you is is more accurate. But how about this? Here's why you think this is true. Mm. Not because you were wrong or stupid. Mm. Those are all just unnecessary, right, wrong, binary shit. That pe- that's what makes all of this so difficult. Like I can't be wrong. So I have to be right. Instead, it's like, okay, here is this kind of fucked up path developed by usually one single dia- um, demographic with the purpose of control and power and money. And here's this beautifully successful, depressingly successful and uh, effective scaffolding and infrastructure that they have built over the course of time so that you in 2023 can go into someone's Instagram comments and talk about how there's only two genders. I know this because I read it in a book. It's again, not because you're some, you know, unintelligent person. It's because you are the product of a very intentionally built social structure that has been rebranded with the best PR firm on the planet, patriarchy and white supremacy, and transformed it so that you believe it's actually something inherent about humanness and not just something someone fucking made up centuries ago. And then everybody agreed to, or not everybody, but a lot of people agreed to. (laughs) You had no choice. If you didn't agree to it, you were either literally killed or socially killed. And so it was like, okay, I guess this is true. And just like how we've got here with abortion, it only takes a couple of generations to for it to really form into people's minds because if you like with the internet for example i am a late millennial where i know what it's like pre-internet and i know what it's like post-internet i know about the before times there are people i work with now of course who have never known about the before times they only know the internet right so they don't necessarily have context to understand what it's like to use a card catalog, for example, or to not have instant access to information or right. to not accidentally stumble across internet porn. Same thing with things like abortion or even gender, but especially abortion because it's so recent. I am the first generation. I was born in 84. Me and then people younger than me are the generations that grew up without the use of the word abortion in non-political, just medical descriptive ways. Mm-hmm. Around 85 is when that was starting to get changed. And so the new generation of voters and business owners and council people and politicians have no reason to believe that the word abortion was anything other than this pearl clutchy, politically triggering emotional word. Mm-hmm. And why shouldn't, why should they, you know, they just don't know what it was like on the before times. And right. so that's just an example of how effective that kind of like being able to manipulate history, write the story and rewrite it according to who you want to be in charge mm-hmm. and enough generations with that story, it becomes the truth, capital T. Yeah. And it remains the truth until someone has had access to some kind of critical thinking tool to mm-hmm. be able to think, okay, but what else? How how did we get here? What makes it capital T, the mm-hmm. truth? Mm-hmm. And that process is similar to the process of like, what are my belief systems and what do I need to weed out of my garden? Yeah, um, But it's a really important process. And so a lot of my content is 
yes, this is what's more accurate and true. And if it if it makes sense, I will have additional parts where it kind of shares. And here's how we got here. So you don't have to trust me. I don't care. But you deserve to know why the thing you think is true is actually a total piece of bullshit. And mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you why it's a piece of bullshit. And it's a lot harder to argue with that historical timeline yeah. than and on TikTok. It's hard to argue with me on TikTok also because I won't argue with you. I'll just shut you down or block <laughs> you. But regardless, <laughs> it's like when once you really see it all laid out, the plan yeah. and how disgustingly just like insidious and nefarious and just like intentionally harmful and greedy most of the stories are mm-hmm. and it's led us to believe what we think is true now about sex and sexuality. It's just like, I, I can't imagine someone still being like digging their heels into the thing they think is true after seeing all that, you know? And yet we'd be not surprised to know that there <laughs> absolutely are. They exist. The thing. And I think that, and then I go into deeper beyond like, well, actually just completely in line with what you're saying of just the strength of the human ego and this, this self-preservation instinct that we have to like be right. And to that will, will supersede everything in so many cases. And, and that's really unfortunate because it's not like on a very objective level, it's not, it's not helping you. It's not helping you or anybody for you yeah. to continue to like cling on to something that's disproven, that's harmful, that's dangerous to not only you, to people that you care about. Or it's It blows my mind. But then my, I don't know, it's the artist in me. It's like to try to just observe. I mean, mm-hmm. the human ego is a motherfucker. It's mm-hmm. just so it's wild to to begin to comprehend that. And I've been exposed to it in different ways. Um, I love this conversation so much. We have to take a very quick break, um, but we we'll right back in one second. So Hang tight and we'll be back with more with Anne. Hi, I'm Marvin. And I'm Rira. And we're the hosts of Books and Boba, a book club and podcast dedicated to books by Asian and Asian American authors. Each month, we pick a book by an Asian author to read and discuss on the show. We read a variety of genres, including contemporary and historical fiction, sci-fi and fantasy, romance and cozy mysteries, and so much more. Our past book club picks have included Pachinko by Minjin Lee, Patron Saints of Nothing by Randy Ribeye, Grace of Kings by Ken Liu, and The Kiss Quotient by Helen Huang. Every month, we also go through the latest news in Asian American literature, as well as chat with some awesome Asian authors about their works. So whether you want to start reading for fun again or diversify your TBR list, we got your Asian literature cravings covered. For more info, check out our website at booksandboba.com, and you can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. Hey, first of all, fam, if you're a fan of the show and would like to support, consider backing us on Patreon. You can join our Discord community and get different perks by going to patreon.com slash first of all podcast. If you'd like to support in other ways, you can go check out firstofallpod.com or subscribe and leave a five-star rating on your favorite platform. Or just follow me on Instagram because I love hearing from you. Thank you all so much for the support and enjoy the show. And we're back. Um, Anne, you are feeding my soul and my brain at the same time. So thank you for this conversation. Um, so you and I are definitely of the same generation. I'm just like a year younger than you. It's been a wild thing, I think, to 
become weird. First of all, like, it's just so weird that we're grownups of like, hold, like holding responsibility to shepherd generations. That, that part still feels a bit overwhelming to me, but here mm-hmm. we are, we roll with it. Um, when you approach this and you said that you work with clients that are like from 12 to 75, right? So you're saying as an educator, I'm just curious, how does this, how does this play out? Can you walk me through it? Because I've, I always believe that education and knowledge are such powerful tools. And that's a reason why intentionally or unintentionally, a lot of people don't like when people are educated because it threatens mm-hmm. power. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen that in many different forms. How do you work with clients? Like, so when you're educating, I you totally use your internet platform, which is wonderful. You do you do like one-on-ones, like, is it classrooms? Like how does that work in terms of sex yeah. education? I mean, it's kind of, um, it runs the gamut. Mm-hmm. Um, I do workshops and intensives where you're with me for, you know, 90 minutes or a few hours for a day, small groups, usually around um, maybe 10 to 15 people maximum. And group learning is something that is really powerful because we also get to learn from everybody in the room. I don't, the my education style and my sort of ethos ethics around being an educator is being an educator or having uh, information or having had access to certain kinds of education does not put you up here and everyone else is a peon who knows nothing, Yeah, which is again, another construct of our culture. And it's very much something present in my industry as well as others. Mm. It's very much like I have, I know things. So do you, it might not be about sex, but like, I'm not here. I am in the, you know, I'm on the bench with you and we are on the same level, on the same page the whole time. And that's just the vibe, whether it's one-on-one or in a group, that's just the vibe I maintain. I want people, I'm constantly reminding people that you are not less than anybody else just from access to knowledge. You are a human being who, you know, farts just like everybody else. Right. And like has the same fears about, I don't know, death and spiders than that a lot of people have. And um, so it's, in those group spaces, it's just really powerful. But some people, of course, don't love a, a group environment, which is totally fine. I definitely yeah. do one-on-one. It's more of an, it's it's a cross between coaching and education where people will come to me if they really are just like, you know, I'm having this challenge or I don't really understand this thing or I want to work through this <clears throat> this issue with my partner. Mm-hmm. So it'll be either couples or people solo. And we will work through the issue. There's sometimes goal setting. Sometimes there's a little bit of homework, but it's it's very much a compliment to therapy for some people. And for others, it's an alternative where the thing that they are needing actually isn't a therapeutic thing. And so therapists will refer them to someone like me, like an educator or a coach, where you can really go into that kind of problem solving type place. Wow. And with kids, it's really all, it, it depends. I mean, I... I um. Until recently, I, I've spent years working at facilitating groups in treatment centers for teens. A lot oh. of the times, queer and trans teens, maybe like 75% queer and trans teens. And that would be sort of like modified classroom sex ed that I have done in the past in high schools in Los Angeles on behalf of Planned Parenthood, except mm-hmm. it's my lesson plans, my information, and my style. And um, 
I do sometimes have parents coming to me to try to problem solve and figure out like, how do I deal with this thing? Or uh, how do I talk to my kid about this thing? What should I do? I think that she's going to get her period soon, like that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes those parents will have the kids work with me one-on-one and there's a whole like intake form, consent form and whole like, you know, an interview with the parent present first, of course, with some boundary setting. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's also something that I do. And and since 2020, around like April 2020, it's been exclusively over Zoom, which interestingly has felt like a bummer for a lot of people. And it definitely changes the way you can teach. Yeah. It's I will always prefer in person, but the silver lining to being pushed onto Zoom exclusively is that I've been able to work with people from around the world and be able to connect with and also accommodate folks who can't necessarily like leave the house easily to go to a class for all kinds of reasons. Yeah. And so it also gives this sense of like comfort and privacy for me as an educator, just like the people working with me that makes it feel even more possible to get this kind of support Mm -hmm. because maybe, you know, pre lockdown type situations, they might not have actually felt comfortable or ready or motivated to schedule a session and have to like sit in the same room with me. That might've been the hurdle, the thing that like kept them from it. But now they can sit in bed with their soft clothes and their cat with their laptop on their lap and get that kind of support. So it's really, yeah, yeah, it's workshops, trainings, one-on-one sessions, and then private workshops. Sometimes um, people want me to just make something for a group of people. Sometimes a bachelorette party or sometimes it's parents and, um, and do it that way. I'll tell you, like my first exposure to like, to sex toys in general, like as an actual real life tangible thing and not an ad in the back of a magazine was at a bachelorette party. And mm-hmm. I think those, those, I'm so curious about societal and cultural norms that serve as an education pinpoint, right? Whether we know it or not. I think it was such an exposure, especially I'll say I've been really deeply involved in the Asian American diaspora um, for, you know, a good decade and a half now. And I've been very, uh, investigatory about that. I've like talked and had a lot of deeply personal conversations with people from literally all over the country, from different generations, from different genders. And I feel very honored to have access to a wealth of knowledge that maybe a lot of other people can't have. So in that way, I'm just saying that as a precursor to explain to you and also to assert a certain level of authority that I'm, I'm not just pulling this from like my friends that I know only here. It's like, I've talked to and been opened up to, and even the podcast, like people have opened up to me about really deeply personal things that I take very seriously as like, these are not easy things to share about, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to relationships, feelings, sexuality, you know, those hold such a different weight in different, and every, everything's different for everyone, but in the Asian American diaspora, Asian diaspora in general, I feel like at least what I've noticed from my own experience was like this synergy of the super conservative, conservative Christian upbringing I had matched with this like super conservative Asian culture that I have, which has been, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a double whammy. And like, it's like two plus two equals 50, like, because it's just all these different cues and different, um, like subtle and overt messaging of like, don't go there. Don't do that. Don't do that's That's terrible. That's you know unacceptable. You'll get hit for that. You're going to get yelled at for that. You're going to get kicked out of the house for that. 
in so many different ways, whether that's a matter of reading something, touching something, speaking to somebody and like whatever. And that level of suppression, like it's pushing down a cork and that cork doesn't like just stay down. It pushes back because we're human beings and we're not meant to deny every single feeling and impulse that we have. Mm-hmm. So that like I, I've seen such a and that's a lot of my audience uh, is, is predominantly Asian American, a lot of female identifying people of this like bottled up. I am like, it's the, I don't even, I can't even think of the the term because pandemic brain, but it's like the, the, what is it called? Like the harlot or the angel? Like there's that oh, the Madonna horror complex. Yeah. The Madonna horror complex. Like mm-hmm. we are brought up to be these like pure untouched unsullied both mentally emotionally spiritually physically in every aspect like how many people talked about my hymen before I even fully knew what the hell that was right cherry popping that was like such a part of our and I don't know about how gen z alpha like how they're dealing if that's part of any conversation which I'm really curious and concerned about but that was our generation right like popping cherries like I learned about all this stuff through like friends and culture Mm -hmm. not in any sort of formal education format Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and like what it qualified at, what category XYZ thought or behavior or desire fell into was such a it's a character stick. It was such a stick. Right. It's like this mm-hmm. fear of like, I can't be a whore. And that was even the word that I use. I just I can't be that I can't mm-hmm. be the. But when I watch things like when women are fully in their siren, you know, whatever, and and their sexual people in general, in their sexuality, there's something very like free about it that Mm -hmm. I was like, it's so alluring. It doesn't even have to be like physical facets that are attractive. It's the energy that's like, I'm like, wow, there's something really wonderful there. It's attractive. And it was that push pull that I I dealt with since a young person that I, I truly believe it. If you care to listen to any of the past episodes, like led me down a really scary, 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 dark path. and made me really vulnerable to um, just being with a predator for a really long time and almost not surviving it at many mm-hmm. different points. And mm-hmm. that trauma and that experience has it. I don't want to say it's like shaped me forever, but I, I, I still think that that's true. Like mm-hmm. I can't ever undo those experiences. But if it, if it, if anything, at this point, the healing has made me kind of double, triple down on, we need to educate more. We need to be more, um, not even we need that, that falls under like the should thing that I, I think objectively we benefit so much from knowing more, having mm-hmm. more understanding, compassion for ourselves, mm-hmm. because it will influence the way that we make choices that keep us safe. And keeping us safe keeps other people safe because when you're unsafe, it's like you as an unhinged, unhealed human being can inflict so much unintentional harm on the entire world. Um, and you and I grew, you grew up in California. Like, no, I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire. It was oh, wow. Really, yeah. It was a really, um, I mean, a very strange way to grow up Okay, because it's special, but just, um, but yeah, I had, my parents were, my dad's an immigrant from England. So like, it almost feels like it doesn't count as an immigrant, but like he um, came over on a boat when he was like nine and lived in New York city. And then my mom's from Hempstead, Long Island, and they met and then started dating in Brooklyn and only moved to this small town. Cause my mom was pregnant and they were like, mm-hmm. we can't live in this shithole anymore. Wow. And um, dad needs to get a real job. And 
So he got a job in some random town and they moved their sight unseen. So like our family didn't belong really, but not in a like, woe is me. No one likes us way. It just like, it didn't make sense to be there. Mm. And I'm so thankful because as white as my parents are, there was so much culture in the house. Mm. Um, most of the art, my, my, most of the art on the walls were Japanese woodblock prints and the music we would listen to was whatever. I don't even know how my parents necessarily even like heard of it, but it was not, wasn't necessarily stuff that was like popular. And mm. I remember trying this is like so many little stories pop into my head. I was on the jump rope team in elementary school and we were allowed to bring in cassette tapes of our favorite song to put um, a, as a mix for our practice. So I I brought in my favorite song, which was a song by the Fine Young Cannibals, which like what a random thing for an eight year old to love, <laughs> um, which like technically I was so cool and also was the uncoolest person. Uh-huh. And um, the it didn't make it on the mix. They oh. tried it once and everyone was just looking around like, what the fuck is this shit? And so instead, like that song, like jump, jump, I, I, whatever, that made it onto the. Yeah. Thing. So anyway, um, that would have been my never, song. I apologize. I probably would have chosen. <laughs> I mean, it's a good one. It's it's all it's good. It's good. It's just sort of like cool on the nose. Yeah. So <laughs> it was like one of these colonial towns where like there are people there who have like multiple generations of family who have lived in this town. OK, it's a lake town and it was a vacation town. So it was a place that like rich people and then like middle-class people would vacation in, but then like we live there all the time. Mm-hmm. And so it's very weird to be a resident in a vacation place surrounded by so much wealth and opulence and sort of like we summer up there type of <laughs> attitude. And it's um, home. It's our lake house. Yeah. And, and so, so anyway, it was, it was like small town vibes and, you know, pre-internet, pre- a variety of things. And my parents were thankfully so cultured that I didn't, again, like I did not get a lot of scripting around, you know, what kinds of people are bad, you know, who to think is good, what kind of religion is the best. They were so damaged from enforced Catholicism that we were just mm. void of all religion, mm. which in its own way, it, it would have been useful to at least have had some information about it. But regardless, there was just no like traditional small town, New England vibe in our family, but we just happened to live there because that was where my dad got a job. And that as soon as I could, I, you know, I I left because I just never quite uh, made sense there. And um, I didn't, I didn't ski. I didn't, you know, didn't, I didn't obviously have a boat. Like we didn't do water things and jet ski. And like, I tried yeah. A, lot, a lot of stuff, but like it just <laughs> didn't stack you. No, nothing quite made sense. So it was just, it just always felt like square peg round hole. Yeah. Well, good for you to be able to discern that. I mean, that's such a huge part of life, right? Wherever you go, whoever you're around and whatever you're doing, it's always like, does this, does it make sense? Is this mm-hmm. my, the peg in the whole room? Um, but I'm curious, like when, so when you're in New Hampshire mm-hmm. in this, in this uh, summer home town, were you getting, sex education because I was actually realizing that I got the biology information when I was 10. Mm -hmm. Specifically, I remember that because I got my period before I had my first sex ed class. Mm -hmm. So even that for for me, at least was like, I had to figure it out because I was bleeding. But then my mom had had some really like 
a 14 second conversation with me in the car on the way to school one day. And she's like, did you start mens? And then she said this in Korean. So, I, okay. Mm. I'm like still trying to like, is that a Korean word? Is that an, what is, is that English? And I had, I was like discombobulated. I was like, mens, like, what is that? Later, much later, figure out, oh, she meant menstruation. Oh, that's what Korean people call menstruation. Oh, she was trying to talk to me. About, like, mm. all that was years later. But I didn't know what she was talking about, so I said no. But I had also seen her pads at home mm-hmm. for years under the sink. And I was like, why are there, like, these diaper things? Mm-hmm. Never asked her directly because it seemed hidden away. So I was like, I'm not. And that's in her private bathroom. But I knew that existed. So when I got my period, I just put two and two together. And I was like, mm-hmm. that's what that's for. Oh, cause, ah, oh, got it. And so I carted my little overall wearing butt to the <laughs> nurse's office and asked, I don't even think I said, I didn't know what a pad was, mm-hmm. but I think I said I'm bleeding mm-hmm. or like, I need to talk to whatever. I don't remember the con, but I remember the experience of walking down this giant hall and be like, I need to take care of something. And even then I was like, that's how I figured it out. And then months after that is when I had sex ed. And I was like, so even then at that time it was a little late. And so I can't imagine, I was wondering how many other, you know, how many other uterus owners had gone through that. Mm -hmm. And if you had had that, because it's such a different thing based on where you live of like, yeah, I had what is something that seems to be relatively common from what people have shared with me, including teenagers today, where in fifth grade, there was the puberty lesson. Yeah. And so that was where it was mandated separation of presumed genders. And we would have we had this sort of kooky older lady who. Um, I The main thing I remember is, you know, talking about tampons and, and or not tampons periods. I actually don't know if tampons showed up in the conversation, but pads did. And I remember mm-hmm. she good for her, I think, because she was kind of just being like casual and kind of funny about it. She she unwrapped a pad to show us how, what it looked like. And then it's like, and it just sticks in your underwear. So she took the adhesive off and just stuck it to her shirt and then taught the rest of the class with that on her shirt, which I could totally see myself doing now nice. um, with some better material. But like, <laughs> uh, that was the main thing. And then we were, we were left with little goodie bags, which is like a little tiny sample stick of secret deodorant in the baby powder scent and totally got that. maybe a pad and maybe a, um, an underwear liner or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so there was awareness around periods. Um, and I got my period like a year and a half or two years later, I was 12 in seventh grade. I was wearing overalls and I was on a field trip. Um, but I don't actually know. I think that there was some kind of sex ed class potentially in high school. I, again, like my, I don't have great memories of a lot of my childhood, but I'm pretty sure there was something in high school. Um, what I, but it was like later, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I was not sexually active in school in part because no, um, I was, let's say like an unconventional person. And the way that I looked was not what anybody in small town, New England thought was attractive in any way. And so it was really just like, um, me, myself and I, in terms of sexual expression and pleasure, which didn't bum me out. It was just Mm -hmm. like, that was just how it was. Yeah. So I don't necessarily have personal lived experience reference around like, Oh, I learned about this too late, but from the teenagers I work with now, I would say nine and a half times out of 10, they'll share with me that by the time they had some kind of bullshit sex ed in school, any everybody's been blowing each other already for years, you know? And so they would kind of laugh at it. And the general attitude is, 
I don't need this class. I already know because Mm -hmm. I do it. There's this thought around learning by doing is the best way to do it. Right. Which Mm -hmm. to me is like, that's actually, I, my whole life have had to, for the most part, learn by do because I didn't have any help. And yeah, it was all my, by myself. And it's the fucking worst thing ever (laughs) because you're, you're trying to pretend to read directions while, while trying to get a thing done while also learning in real time. It doesn't work. You just, it's a, you just fuck up constantly and it's really stressful and it takes, it's so much damage is done. Um, but that is the sad state where if you get any kind of sex at at all, there's the fifth grade puberty talk, no sex, just puberty. And mm-hmm. then you're, you either have nothing or you have this very um, basic unhelpful type of sex ed in like 10th or 11th grade mm-hmm. when maybe 60% of the class have had some kind of sexual experience consensually or not. But Mm -hmm. so they're sitting there not paying attention. They're just kind of laughing. Yeah. And they think that because they've touched a penis or made someone touch their penis once, they already know how to do it all. And they're good to go. Yeah. And they become less receptive to that information too. A hundred percent. I mean, I think anybody who's been a teenager, which is everybody, if like, let's be real, as soon as you turn to like, what, 11, 12, usually this is a generalization, but it's pretty accurate. You basically know everything. I'm using the air quotes Mm because it's bullshit. And it's like you just, the attitude, which is why timing, context, psychology, all of that matters because it would inform then how to communicate important messaging by understanding, oh, this is a common attitude at this point. These are common things. And to deny that, to deny many truths that coexist, but a large amount of like teenagers having experienced a lot of things, you're really just putting a lot of wasted energy into something that's not going to work. And that makes me annoyed in just an inefficiency level. I get very (laughs) like, why are you going to go through all this like work and effort to have uncomfortable conversations that are completely ineffective? If you're going to have the uncomfortable conversation, might as well do it at a point where it's going to save you, your child, your whoever, the person that is in your care in any capacity from from all sorts of bullshit. Like, why, why would you do that? Mm-hmm. And um, here's the other thing, the caveat is, and I've learned this having like immigrant parents too, and like being very conscious about what was available to them and being mature enough to like have grace and to understand their context was completely different than mine. That's fine. And that's always something that I think is also goes hand in hand with like evolving, have grace. Fine. We didn't know that. But like when you know better, like that's mm-hmm. when I'm like, now it's just stupid. Now this is just ridiculous that mm-hmm. we're not being better when we can be better. And we have every reason and every, every resource to be better. And we're just like choosing not to. That's when it's like willful, not just in, like willful stupidity. And mm-hmm. it's very, very harmful. If it was just stupidity for stupidity's sake, that's one thing. But now it's actually causing trauma and it's causing you know, sexual assault, it's causing all sorts of very deeply lifelong impacting issues that are just being unaddressed. That's what drives me crazy. Yeah, I think, and I'll also just add a layer to that because there's, you know, we are ignorant of a variety of things by design. Mm -hmm. So like at the start, it technically isn't our fault that we are fucking clueless about most of this stuff. And I like to remind people, especially people who feel ashamed that they don't know what a clitoris is, or they're not sure if if they've ever had an orgasm or, you know, all of that kind of stuff. It's like, you can feel however you need to. I I don't blame you. And Mm -hmm. it's not your fault. It's your responsibility to do something about it. Yeah. And that's where the willful ignorance comes from, where it's like, 
with access to things and you continue to choose to just not do it, that that is now your fault. That is on you. But to start, we are the product of a very intentionally put together system of intended ignorance about specifically human identity and sexuality. Yeah. And the way that we they've sort of succeeded in doing that is what they're also doing now with anybody who's gender diverse in any kind of way or queer mm-hmm. or does drag is they sexualize something that is inherently not sexual. Yeah. Like sexuality is not inherently sexual. Asexual people have a sexuality. The sexuality is so much more than orgasms and genitals and behaviors. It's at the core. It's about feelings. Mm-hmm. What you do with those feelings, totally superfluous and doesn't actually define anything about you. Yeah. But because things like sex ed and all of these conversations and certain groups of people, which some groups I'm a part of, are sexualized by people who have power, want to maintain that power. And so they find very effective, clever ways to create, to to take advantage of the ignorance that they have helped perpetuate mm-hmm. by turning that in, or by manipulating that into fear. Yeah. And so by... Um, creating a scary boogeyman out of something that people don't understand because nobody wants them to, they're Mm -hmm. able to then maintain more power and say, don't worry, I'll protect you from that scary stuff. And meanwhile, as you were saying, everybody's just kind of like roaming around with no context or information as a result. And some people are, are then really stuck in a shame spiral or a guilt space or a fear space or all of it mm-hmm. and don't know what to do. And meanwhile, the people who have helped create this are, you know, generation by generation, maintaining that kind of power and using the same techniques and tactics that have worked for, you know, decades and centuries. Right. And at its core, any kind of sex ed Maybe you'll even first start with like the when we don't have actual access to sex education, we're going to we the questions are still there and the curiosity is still there. So people go to the next best thing that makes sense to them, which is usually either, you know, siblings, older people who are like, I'll tell you what this is about um, or experimentation, learn by doing. And they think that that's like an effective way. Mm-hmm. Or they go online and usually it's a lot of the times it's like, well, I'll, I'll watch porn or I found porn and that makes sense that it would end up being the sex ed substitute because what else are you going to look at if you want to learn about sex? Nobody's going to tell you what's really true. So you're going to go to the fictionalized stuff because it's pretty free and easy. And then we get the people now who are like, which you, you were sort of um, alluding to, like the people who said, you know, I, I, I it did this. This is my experience in 10th grade. And that's what my truth is. Therefore, it's the truth. Mm-hmm. And you telling me otherwise, you don't know what you're talking about. Or you have people who were like, I know I, I got this in a class. I read it in a book. Therefore, for I know it is the truth, even if that book was written by the person who wanted you to believe that thing and not actually what's true. And so now we're in 2023 where we have on the one hand a lot of progress in terms of knowledge and framework to understand things like humanness mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. you have on the other side a what feels like a regression into some especially archaic spaces around things like humanness and the it's no surprise to me that that this binary way of living, it's either one or the other and that's it. Like binary shows up throughout humanity, not because it's human, but because it's created uh, by humans who want to sort of manipulate and take control. 
we now have this kind of like binary feeling around you're either liberal or you're conservative. And if you're one, this is who you are as a person. And if you're the other, this is how you are as a person. And there's no space for there to be any kind of middle ground about anything. Mm -hmm. And anytime that there's a binary, it's, it's just so inhuman that it's hard to navigate and makes everything feel almost impossible to kind of just do because there's so little wiggle room. It's just kind of like you're encased in these really limited bounds and confines and it it can make it not only is it hard to be a human mm-hmm. in that kind of space, it's also hard to do certain kinds of work that are by design meant to kind of break those confines down. Yeah. And it doesn't mean it's not worth it. It does mean though that it it's it's not necessarily an easy path to to follow or an easy Absolutely. choice to make even. Absolutely. And and I think that you saying that the way that you did, like that it's an easy choice to make that there's so many people that I know I have known and it's changing all the time, which I'm grateful for. I've known people who opt to not make a choice, but that is a choice. It's they a valid choice. Yeah. It's just sometimes kind you have of, to say sometimes that's the choice you have to make in the moment. Yeah. And, and I guess the thing that I've wanted to, I, I keep crystallizing over time of like what I want to impact the world or what I, what I want to say with the podcast and what I want to say with anything I write or act in or whatever is to explore the gray. I think when you, mm-hmm. you talked about that, that confined limited space, it's to add to that. I feel like it's a confined, limited, rigid, brittle space. There's no flexibility. There's no room for it to be anything other than black or white. And from my experience on this earth and a very big multitude of intense and romantic and wonderful and heartbreaking and traumatic and uplifting things that I've been through, most of life happens in the gray. And we have a many different choices that are, you know, our disposal. It's good to know what those choices are so that mm-hmm. we can over time continue to make choices that are more in in alignment with who we are to be able to distinguish who the hell we are versus the next person to be able to accept the next person as that's who you are. And that's great. And then this is where you stop and where I begin. That's great. And we can coexist and we don't have to fight each other. I'm not going to like, it just, it, it, it blows my mind. Those like little things that we can do within ourselves. It actually does radiate out into the rest of the universe. Right. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's su- such, it's, it's available to us, but it doesn't feel that way. Like you said, it feels impossible. And I'll say that when it comes to the sex ed component with like maybe women and anybody who's listening to my podcast may or may not feel, I have personally felt, and I've heard really close friends of mine struggle with feeling like they're supposed to have known certain things by a certain time. And if they did it, they're a pariah or there's something wrong with them or they're not desirable or like, because that's what X, Y, Z construct told them that that is bullshit. I need that to be like really clear in this episode and in my show that that's not true. And if there's some outside voice that can help like crack that wall down and like, I'll take a sledgehammer. It's, it's not true. Everyone's figuring it out and you're not shameful and you're not a bad Christian and you're not a bad woman and you're not a bad person or whatever, a bad son or daughter or whatever, a child of your parent to have had questions who have made mistakes, whatever that means to experiment, to explore. Mm -hmm. And there's so much more to discover and learn. And that is all to like our benefit. And it's just, I need that to, I need to take my sledgehammer 
I'll take it every day as much as they can. We all have to start somewhere. Yeah. I mean, the people that you revere and, you know, are your like mentors in your fantasy world, they all started someplace too. No Mm -hmm. one is born with this stuff downloaded. Yeah. And there is, if you're, if anyone makes a value judgment based on what somebody does or does not know, based on what information they did or did not have access to, that also is a product of white supremacist patriarchal culture. Mm -hmm. And sometimes being able to see it as that makes it easier for the value judgment to go away because you Mm -hmm. realize like, oh, fuck that. That's not about me actually. But so what is about me? And shifting out of the the value judgment space just into a, I didn't know this. Now I do now. I, I I let myself feel good about that. How wonderful. And what else can I know? And really kind of try to get back to that curiosity place that most children have and most children have sort of sometimes literally or figuratively like beaten out of us. Mm-hmm. And so yep. it's so hard to access that in adulthood. But when you yeah. can reach that just curiosity with no judgment associated, yeah, it definitely makes more space. Like those walls, those confined walls kind of fall. They might not fall down, but they like expand a little more. There's more room to start stretching and move around yeah. without bashing your you know head or your arm against the walls. Yeah. And it's a place to start. I love it. And I like, thank you for this conversation. We have um, a few minutes left of your time. I want to be really respectful of like, of um, your generosity. Can you, uh, I I've seen so many great gems on your, on your TikTok alone. I didn't explore outside of TikTok, but I highly encourage people to go follow along. You'll learn something. People complain about TikTok. I get it. It can be addicting, but also it's such a wealth of information mm-hmm. and it's, educated me so deeply. You talk about modern love languages. You talk about the history of a lot of different societal norms, things like you said, like abortion and things like that. I'm curious um, because the the episodes that I've, ha- I've had on this show where I talk about sex relationships and dating have been by far, you know, the biggest hits. I think it is something that we're all deeply curious and invested in, like mm-hmm. on an emotional level. When it comes to sex, what are kind of if you're open to sharing, what are the most common myths that you've been breaking with like your clients or the the people that you're educating, whether they be young or old, what are really common myths? I w- would love to like, just give people a sampling of like the kind of stuff that you share because it's so great. I mean, some of it, some of the myths are around um, just the assumption that like sex is natural and something that all people want and have. And that sex is a natural drive because we all need to procreate. Like all of that is just made up. If sex was just, if we were inherently having sex because we want to procreate, none of us would be giving BJs or having anal, (laughs) you know, sex is not actually, we can choose to to use sex to procreate, but most of the time, like when people are desiring sex, they're not, I desire a baby in nine months and life-threatening symptoms and side effects in the process. It's more like I'm desiring an experience or a feeling Mm-hmm. And that's what is actually driving. I don't actually don't like the word drive. Um, that's what can compel somebody to like want to do something sexual by themselves or with somebody else. Mm. Um, so it's really like, yeah, that like sex is not this universal thing for all people. And there are a lot of folks who don't actually experience sexual attraction. And though that is pathologized as a disorder, that's just one of many things about sexuality that have been pathologized by the medical community. Wow. Um, I mean, there's so much to, there's so much, right. A lot of myths around like how pleasure ex- happens and what body parts do and what orgasms is, are all about. Like just a lot of stuff that 
are a lot of things that feel very true, but are really just social constructs that have been regurgitated mm-hmm. just, de- you know, generation after generation in reliable um, books written by people that you have all reason to trust. And they're not intentionally trying to lie either. Like they were told it was true as well. So it's kind of like the cyclical passing down of untruths that feel very true. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it has to do with, yeah, the experience of sex and sexual desire. And then other times it's just these myths around what makes a health, what, what, what healthy means when it comes to healthy sexuality or what healthy means when it comes to healthy relationships and really just like breaking down that whole hashtag relationship goals bullshit into really just shining a light on here's what that healthy relationship looks like on paper. Does any of that actually look healthy to you? Like Mm. this idea of loyalty, for example, Mm. um, and, or infidelity and micro cheating, all these things are just completely made up, but are, especially with the help of social media, really just, um, compounded and, repeated so often that it feels so true. And so a lot of that gets broken down and kind of called out in my content and in my classes. We love you for it. I'm, I'm, I'm very much for people who will question things and you'll get different answers, but I think questioning things instead of just accepting that. And I think that's, that applies to younger me. I guess I'm always trying to just like be the big sister my inner child didn't have. And Mm -hmm. that's, and that's, been a very uh, interesting journey, but it's great to know that people are out there defending the truth or like constantly seeking the truth. I think those are people that I really like vibe with because I think that's what I'm trying to do too. I don't, we don't know, but we're doing the best that we can to figure things out. And the more the information that we have and more context that we have and the more, you know, like honesty that we have vulnerability, which I think your work helps people be, you know, just Mm -hmm. when you're armed with knowledge it allows you to open up more. It allows you to have less judgment and less restriction. You're like, oh, I didn't know that. And then now, mm-hmm. and then what, you know? Um, so thank you for sharing that. I just, I really appreciate your work for that millionth time. It's so great <laughs> to like talk to you and hopefully that people continue to learn about your work and let's let the internet do what it does, like reach more people. I think it's so great that you do your one-on-ones, but it's also great that you are able to share it with anybody who has the time and curiosity to like go to your page. It's yeah. Great. Yeah. <sighs> well, um, I have three final, final rapid questions that I ask all my guests. Um, mm-hmm. So this is to close out our episode with Anne. Uh, what are you grateful for today, Anne? It could be anything deep, tiny, like whatever. What are you grateful for? Hmm. Uh, because I'm coming off of a cold or a sinus infection, I'm uh-huh. grateful for my neti pot. <laughs> I heard great things. I haven't tried it yet. It's fantastic. I heard it's great. Okay. Awesome. Um, what are you looking forward to today? Um, I'm looking forward to getting out of the house, leaving this little box. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and uh, what are final things you want to share with anyone listening today? Um, I just think like, Meet yourself where you're at, even if it's not where you want to be, including meet everybody else where they're at, even if it's not where you'd like them to be. And meeting yourself or meeting other people where they're at doesn't mean you have to like excuse shitty behavior. It also could mean like, okay, I'm not going to do anything more with this. I'm going to leave. But to just like make space for 
all of the feelings you have, like all, uh, any, however you are in every day and each day, like just meet yourself there without, with as much um, judgment awareness as you can to try to sort of be the, be the trusted adult that you would have liked to have had as a kid and be that adult. Yes. To other people, but like, especially to yourself day to day. I don't know that like in my mind was way more um, eloquent and concise, but that's kind of what I would like, you know, compassion is important, especially compassion for yourself. Like you don't have to like yourself at all, but if you can get to like acceptance, neutrality vibes, navigating all this stuff becomes a lot more possible. Yeah. It may be eventually, it might actually be like fun to do. Amazing. Thank you again so much. This was such a great conversation. Um, wishing you the absolute best. I'll check in with you. Like I, I'll, I'll comment and like support however I can, but it was so great to meet you and have you on the show. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Always Thanks for tuning in for this week's episode with Anne Hoddership talking about sex ed. And thank you so much for being such a great guest. It was so great to talk to you, to meet you. And I am here forever cheering on your work. Thank you for the work that you do. I hope everyone who tuned in like genuinely got a little bit liberated, maybe healed, um, excited in your various ways just to be curious and to be open and to accept yourself and to accept others and respect others and be good about it because this is a really important part of who we are as people and it's all good and i hope that you guys will follow along on Anne's journey you guys can find her on instagram at the ann hotter um, she also has her website anhottership.com and everyone deserves sex ed.com we'll have links to all that in the description um follow along with her work and check out all the other different resources that are out there i want you know these conversations to drive more curiosity for us to get educated right and that can be a number of ways whether that's the biology part the cultural part the intimacy part the spiritual part i'm i'm for all of it so go do you uh, and be well thank you to marvin Ewing, my audio engineer and producer thank you to town kim my producer and thank you to julianne dear my social media manager i love you guys go team appreciate you thank you to patreon patrons for supporting the show keeping the microphone on if you would like to contribute to the podcast go to firstofallpod.com to find out however you'd like to contribute even good vibes are welcome that does a lot for me i promise and i haven't said this in a minute but please do leave a five-star review it does help in terms of searchability and just good feelings for me and the team it really means a lot so do leave a five-star review. If you want to say hi, you can email me at firstofallpod at gmail.com. You can follow along on Instagram and all that. Links are in the description. And I love you. <laughs> I'm also a member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, which is a collective of Asian American podcasters and storytellers. Go check out their shows. It's a great variety of personalities and stories, which I love. This week's intro was, of course, provided by Uzuhan Uzutrap. And our outro this week is my girl, Samika, who is so lovely. Just uh, adore her. It's her song, Red Ferrari. And with that, I wish you all an amazing week. Be curious. Be respectful to self, to others. Love each other. Love yourself. Be healthy. Be well. And I will talk to you soon. Bye. Hey, I'm Bill Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and 
celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, we got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace.